0: I am just taking a break from homeschooling, so if you can hear in the background, he's uh, he's just in the living room having a little play. Um, It is, near him? It is a glorious, glorious morning. I'm just opening the window with that. And I've locked it. And I've got my head out now and I'm looking over onto the hills of Gloucestershire and it's beautiful as not a cloud in the sky. I hope wherever you are, The sun is shining and you're feeling okay. Now look, it's episode 125 this week with stand-up radio presenter, podcaster extraordinaire, Mr Matt Ford. And it's a brilliant conversation. I'm going to get to that in a second. But first, friend of the podcast, Mr Joseph Gilgan, has a second series of a smash hit comedy, Brassic, come into Sky One and Now TV. Tonight, if you listen to this, on a Thursday tonight, the second series is starting tonight, and they're dropping a full box set, and it's going to go out each week. Now, to accompany it each week, our very own producer Griff has made a little ride-along podcast for each episode, and if you're very lucky, I think we've got a little trailer for you. Here you go. Hello, I'm Joseph Gilgan and this is the Barasic Podcast. Indeed it is, and I'm Joe's mate Grifter, who's in charge of making it. We're going to be sticking out an episode every week after Brassic's been on the telly. We'll be chatting to some of the actors... My name is Damien Maloney.
1: I'm Michelle Keegan.
0: Beautiful people with a beautiful accent.
1: (laughs) And some of the people behind the scenes...
0: I can confirm that he does. (laughs) You get this shortlist and then you start ringing the councils that are in charge of him and say, Hiya, can we uh, close this off and shoot everyone? And hearing a load more from Joe about the real-life stories behind the show we all love. Do you know who's like Ned Flanders? Go on. Damien Maloney. I bet he is, He's ripped... Dude, it's unbelievable. I
1: you weren't like this before we started recording,
0: man. Well, no, no. I have to open up, then I'm a performer. But do you want me to be miserable? No. I can't <laughs> do that, what I've just been doing. So go and watch Brassic on Sky, subscribe to this podcast channel, and we'll see you back here after every show for a catch up.
1: That's clinically accurate.
0: <laughs> so that's Brassic tonight, starting Sky One. And if you want to binge it, why not? Now's the time. All episodes are available. And remember, each week, subscribe to The Brassic Podcast and hear the lovely dulcet tones of producer Griff alongside all the cast and a lot of Joe, which I think we all need a bit more in our lives. Maybe we'll have him back on for a third outing. Who knows? Um, now, onto to this week's episode. I uh, went into the home studio. Uh, when I say home studio, I went into my bedroom and recorded from a chest of drawers with some pillows around me because that's the type of professional broadcaster that I am. Uh, and I linked up with my friend Matt Ford to have a big old catch-up and talk about growing up in Nottingham football, uh, my lack of knowledge of football, as we all know, um, how he got started with impressions, how he got started in stand-up, and the uh, the road into politics. Um, he is such good company. I, I, I do mean that. I've been out with Matt a few times. We were at the the very first podcast awards where he's nominated for his great podcast, the Political Party podcast, which you should listen to. It's very good and very funny. He is great. I'm so thrilled that he came on. We've been trying to do it for ages, me and Matt, and it's just, as a case with everybody, it's just about uh, getting dates and having time. And right now, we've got plenty of time. Can he st- He's still playing. Right. What's he doing? I've got to get back to homeschooling. And I think what you should do is get back to doing whatever you want to do and listen to the exceptional tone of Mr. Matt Ford. This is episode 125 of the Two Shot Podcast. Here he is. It's Matt Ford. Enjoy. I shall see you at the end. I'm very good, mate. How are you? I'm good. It's lovely to see you
1: and hear you. I'm it's so really pleased. Good. We have a habit of bumping into each other at stuff. All the time. Lastly, the Only Fools and Horses musical.
0: <laughs> I think we both probably had too much of the free drink. I think we did, didn't we? But God bless them. We were you there to celebrate their first year? What a joy that was. What a laugh, wasn't
1: it? I loved it. I went to see it. My girlfriend got me tickets for it, because I'm a massive fan of Only Fools and Horses, so she got me tickets for Christmas... So I'd seen it maybe six months earlier. Yeah. I'd have paid to go. So getting to go for now was nice, and then free beer was just perfect. And then I saw you there.
0: It's the cherry on the top (laughs) of the cake. (laughs) It was the cherry, yeah. Matt, so usually, um, you know, I get to see people and I meet them in the flesh, and we have a little talk. Oh, man. And we get to know each other a bit, and then we record a podcast, but in times like this, I can't do it. I know. So... This is the next best thing. I really so what,
1: wanted to go, meet up with you and do
0: it over a pint and stuff, but we've had a few beers in our time. Exactly, and you're on the water, and it's, uh, it's quarter to six on a Friday night, and I'm, uh, I'm cracking out uh, the Denvelde. Day. What the hell is that? Aldi's finest, kid. <laughs> Aldi's finest. <laughs> well, it looks nice. It is, actually. So what, what I've done, I've kind of reformatted the, the opening... Okay. of the podcast now. So we're going to do a little lightning round, just as a little warm-up. Great. Which I'm sure you'll uh, you'll dive into. So shall we do that, Matt Let's Ford? do it, yeah. Starter or dessert?
1: Oh, that is really hard because I usually have both. I'm a real three-courser. <laughs> and you can tell that by looking at me. Oh, that is hard. If pushed, dessert. I think it's really? lovely to end on a sweet. In yeah, fact, wow. at night, after, you know, if I've been drinking or whatever, I will often have a big bar of chocolate to go to bed on. And I swear to God, it helps stop a hangover.
0: Really? Yeah, a oh, big bar of
1: dairy milk. You know what? Last night, I <laughs> ate a key, half a kilo of ice cream in one <laughs> sitting. Oh, mate, the self love. Oh, was that Bridget Jones? <laughs> and then half a kilo. I just ate a whole tub of Ben and Jerry's, um, what's it called? <laughs> cookie dough. Oh, God. Oh, man. So moorish. <laughs> Did you sleep all right? I tell you what, that upsets your tummy. I don't know if you've experienced this before.
0: Well, I don't think I've ever eaten half a kilo of <laughs> cookie dough <laughs> <laughs> ice cream, to if, be honest, if mate. If you
1: eaten, particularly I find this, if you have curry and then ice cream, it's like, it's like putting Mentos into a bottle of coke. <laughs> <laughs> You've
0: you seen the videos
1: on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, like, pin me it down okay, in
0: man. Area 51. <laughs> oh, God, I bet that was a lovely night for your girlfriend <laughs> to be slapped next to that. Here we go. Eyes down. Okay. Vinyl or download? Oh, I'd see,
1: I prefer vinyl, but I download way more
0: music than I use...
1: Do you know what I mean? If if my is anything to go by, I am a downloader over a vinyl person, but I do
0: prefer vinyl. Mm. But downloading's but, cheap, I don't know. I know, but we've got to support the music industry and the the re- independent record shops, haven't we?
1: Yes, I totally agree. But,
0: mm. I mean, that's hard at the moment. Yeah, it's true. Anyway, we're not talking about all that. Yeah, I yeah, sod that. Matt? Yes or no? Yes, always yes. Tony.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throw yourself in there. Saturday night
0: or Sunday morning?
1: That's a good question for a Nottingham boy. Saturday night, every time. Best best night of the week.
0: Town or country?
1: Town. Although I love the country, but at this stage of my life, town. Train or plane? Train. Train is the best way to travel. You can get up, you can mooch about... There's usually yes. a drinks trolley or, a, a you know, a <laughs> catering car somewhere. <laughs> Train's the best way, absolutely. And you can plug your laptop in, you can read.
0: Your ears don't pop. Lennon or McCartney? Oh, Lennon. Beatles or Stones?
1: Oh! I just can't... It's really hard to see past the Beatles, but I saw the Rolling Stones a couple of years ago. I think the Beatles are better... But I I would say more Rolling Stones songs are in my favourite. You know what? I'm gonna say stones, purely for sympathy for the devil and gimme shelter.
0: Enough said. North or south? North. Good man. Home or away? Home. Answer the phone or leave to voice my own. Oh,
1: always answer it. Always answer it. <laughs> Who's well, leaving it? What sort of sociopath? <laughs> You'd be surprised well, about surprised this question. Depends, depends who's calling, but <laughs> given, oh yeah, just answering. Oh, I can't be. I hate it when you check your voicemail. It's like you have thirteen saved messages. Oh, I've got to go through all these now. Too much admin. Deal with it. Deal with it. You at the de-
0: time. You're definitely answering a phone call from a withheld number.
1: Well, If it's withheld, that's different because it's usually PPI or hassle. True. Long bath or a quick shower. See, this is one of those ones about what do I usually do or what would I prefer. So I usually have a quick shower, but the idea of a long bath is far more appealing. True. Tea or coffee? Tea, every time. Top man. Passenger or driver? Oh, passenger. Way better. You can, you can put music on, <laughs> you can far about, you can drink. <laughs> Matt Ford, winter or summer? I've always been winter. I I love summer, but I just... I think because my birthday's in November and I love Christmas, Mm. I really love winter. So winter. Leading on from that, then,
0: Christmas Eve or Christmas Day?
1: Oh, Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is the best... The best day of the year is Christmas Eve. Christmas is downhill from midnight (laughs) on Christmas Eve. At that point, the, the clock is ticking down. Up until midnight on Christmas Eve, there's still hope in the air. Weekday or weekend? Oh, weekend always, always weekend. To give or to receive? Oh, to give. Far more satisfying because I think, I don't know, in life you tend to just get stuff as you need it, don't you? Or I I suppose Mm. if you're lucky enough, occasionally, and I mean on a very small level, want it, so you can usually watch the film you want to watch or listen to the song you want to listen to, whatever. So then actually it is more exciting to get someone something that, you've thought they'll really like. Because on the whole... I mean, I'm a man of simple pleasures anyway. As long as I can listen to Oasis and eat chocolate...
0: What <laughs> like, what or eat e- ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> um Matt, football, to watch or to play? To watch, because I'm
1: lousy at playing it, and I love watching it. I do love playing it, but I'm crap at it, so to watch.
0: And well, you must be missing it at times like this, eh?
1: You, I think you people... Obviously, I realise that it's just a game and all the rest of it, but it, it, I think there's a lot to be said for the social good that it does. And in terms of just, where else do you gather with 30,000 people? Or if you follow a Premier League club, 80, 70, 60,000 people on a Saturday. Where else in Britain is that happening? It's not happening anywhere well, else. And that's Not at the moment. At, at the <laughs> moment, that isn't happening. So that social yeah. interaction... And just the pleasure, you know, the randomness of sport, the storylines that emerge. They're basically improvised storylines from sport. The drama of it's gone or is on hold. Everything's on hold, so
0: definitely.
1: But also, uh, you know,
0: taking into the fact we are social animals anyway, know, so we crave that interaction full stop, whether it is it a football game or it's going to the pub or it's going to a restaurant or just hanging out full yeah. stop. That's It's there in us. Now, speaking of things that we miss, and I don't want to go on too much about it, because I want, what I want is these um, remote episodes to be just like the others, that people can dip in and out to, and people can escape to in other people's lives, but I know one thing that is so dear to you, and that's not happening this year, and it's Edinburgh. Oh man, gutted,
1: absolutely gutted.
0: I came up to see you last Summer, didn't that's I? That's right, yeah. And saw your show, and, and it, at the start, of the, the start of the show, and you lost your voice, do you remember? Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was able to have it on stage,
1: because I bought some special tea, and you told me about that Sanderson's throat-specific stuff.
0: Which, so, do you know, I found out a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, gone out of business. No! Can't get it anymore. You're kidding, you know no, what? No, I was, I was in my... i was spare bottle. No way! That might be worth summer. Keep that. I was in Manchester and I went in to the Boots near the Arndale and I was speaking to them there because that's remember when I used to get it from there quite a lot. And she went, "No, no, love. They've uh, they've gone out, they've gone out of business. They've they've ceased trade and they don't do that and went, What? And I went, "No, that was like a lifeline for so many people." Where else am I
1: going to get my paraffin based drink? <laughs> you have to fucking what make there? it. <laughs> <in that laughs> stuff by the way, don't double like no, old it. staples and oils. Hey,
0: ask no questions, tell no
1: lies. It works. It did work, but I'd lost my voice. You recommended me that, and someone got me some throat coat tea. So apart from the hour that I was on stage, I wasn't speaking all day, which made me realise how much I speak to myself during the day. I'm nattering away. Do you do that a lot? Yeah, but I didn't realise until then. I was like, <laughs>
0: until you couldn't do well, it?
1: Yeah, I was just like, <laughs> I must be talking all day and not realising it. I'm just making noises, just walking around. <laughs> like, I don't think I've got to, rest, but it was like... It really made me realise how noisy I am. I can not make any noise. It was, it, was, it was tormenting. But then I got that hour on stage each day, and after the first week, my voice came back.
0: Mm. But
1: obviously, it won't be happening this year, so that's very sad.
0: So, just to touch on it, how how is it making you feel? Because I know that it was such... A big part of your year was that August. Oh, man. And you've been doing it for, what, the past six, seven ten, years? Ten. Oh, ten, ten years. years. Oh, my ten. God, I didn't realise it was that long. Decade in the game, baby. There we go. He's a true stand-up now.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, well, it does. The thing is, if you're a stand-up, it, your whole year revolves around it. I do it every year. And for me, because I will then tour the show afterwards... Mm. In May, June, July, I'm getting a show ready. So I'm gigging all over the UK, taking any preview slot I can get and just trying to write a show and get it ready. And then you get it to Edinburgh, which is this amazing stage. It's the biggest arts festival in the world and the best. And you get to gig it every day in front of brilliant crowds. So you're getting the show ready. And obviously contained in that isn't just the pleasure of being creative and writing jokes that you think people will find really funny and building routines and and building a whole show. It's also the fear And the pressure, you know, it's just completely dominant. Your year revolves around that central three months and then you can take it on tour. Whereas now, obviously to some extent the pressure's off, but I like pressure, I like having deadlines, I like being forced to be creative Mm. and to write new shows and to have audiences to perform it to. And obviously with that gone, I'll tour later in the year probably if gigs come back this year, but it does mean that that, that motivating factor has gone. I'll still be writing material, but nothing gets you ready for for doing it like Edinburgh does. It is the single greatest way to put a show together and to get it the best it's going to be.
0: And also, with a show like yours or the type of comedy that that you put out, it's constantly evolving because... Of the political nature. Yes, of that's the show. right. So it's not like anybody else's show. And I'm sure, I've never spoken to, and I know a load of comedians, and they have the basic format of the show. And, of course, things morph and change around as it progresses and it goes on. But yours can change uh, daily up yes, there in Edinburgh. that's right. But do you ever, do you know, remember, years and years ago, and it some happens still now, but when Edinburgh first started, when it was much smaller, and a lot of comedians were going up there to do the show, and their main goal was to get a Channel 4 pilot and was yeah, to sort yeah. of be on telly. Now, you, you've you never crossed over into that, gone into the acting? Not into the acting, no. No. And I have seen a lot of comedians doing that. Has that never, ever been a thing for you?
1: Um, I, I guess I never really thought about it. I mean, I'd, I'd happily do it, and I suppose... I think if you're a half-decent comedian, you should be and I don't want to offend any actors listening to this, I don't want to offend you, but, like, if you can get up on stage and perform and be funny, surely you're kind of at least a quarter of the way to being able to act a little bit. And with me doing impressions and things, I think, well, I'm basically acting when I'm doing Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, so I'd be up for it. I just don't think... I've never put myself out there as an actor. I don't know how, I don't know how you become one. Do you know, well, I know how you become one, but
0: I haven't gone down that road. No, but a, 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 lot, of, a lot of stand-ups do, don't they? Yeah, to varying degrees of... Well, of course, not to offend any
1: stand-up comedians, Matt Ford, but yes, they exactly, do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the rule, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are good at it, but I just think, I don't know, i just never... I've always had other stuff on, I, I guess, and I've never, no-one's ever said... I'm trying to think of a... I, I think I played... I played like a coaxed-up banker in a sketch for um, something on Channel 4. What was the topical thing that Charlie Brooker and Jimmy Carr and that did?
0: Not the 11 o'clock show? Yes, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: 11 o'clock live or whatever it was. So I, did, I played like a gacked up Essex boy on, a, <laughs> on, on one episode of that. <laughs> I think that's basically been it, yeah. I mean, I'd be up for it because it looks like so much fun. But you're basically <laughs> pretending to be someone else.
0: Yeah, it's quite hard work, Matt. I wouldn't advise it, to be honest. I'd stick doing what you do.
1: Really? Do, do, from <laughs> yeah. There, from your side of the hedge... Mm. Does stand up look like a, a, a better prospect?
0: You think? No, stand up looks like the most terrifying thing <laughs> in the world. <laughs> but also, also, you know me. I've always had like quite. I've I love comedy and I love yes. comedians and I love the art and the nature of it and the history of comedy. And it's such a skill set. And for anybody that thinks that they can just stand up, yeah, you know, I've always said there's a huge difference for that fella in the pub who's holding court and funny, and the actual stand-up comedian who can get up in front of, I don't know, even 30 people and make them all laugh. There's very... It's a very different breed.
1: There is, and but equally within that is the truth that that bloke in the pub may well be funnier than a lot of comedians, but it's the discipline of doing it on stage is like... I suppose it's like learning a martial art, and some people the longer they're in there, actually, they will improve. And people really do get better at comedy. So I think it's you probably do need some natural ability. Well, you definitely need some natural ability. But people who work hard can get on. And you you might meet them and think they're not particularly funny. Like myself, maybe. Some people might think that. Um, But it doesn't doesn't mean that you can't work at it and get better at it.
0: Well, I was talking um, to Charlie Baker a few weeks back, and he was saying it probably took him like, a, a thousand gigs yeah. to, 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 you know, to really get good at it and just die and die. Was it like that for the start, for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, you haven't got a clue what you're doing with Unless you're a genius, and I'm not, then you <laughs> haven't got a clue what you're doing. You're just getting up there with a few ideas. And then I think it took me, I reckon it took me quite a while to realise, probably out of... Not modesty, but I just never believed. I was like, surely you can't make a living being a comedian. Or more to the point, surely I can't make a living doing this. Mm. So then once you start to, you think, well, I do need to take this seriously now because this is potentially a livelihood and a wonderful career if you get it right. So it was at that point I thought, why don't I work harder at this and really think about what I'm going to say and and write it better and, and, and get more into that habit? Um, and I think some people learn that faster. So I, I'm a really good friends with John Richardson. And very early on, he always had a notebook with him and was always writing notes down. And I used to take the piss out of him for him. But I was like, he really thought about stand-up. He thought about how it worked. He thought about what he'd said. He would write down little notes afterwards about whether a particular thing had worked or not. Whereas I was just like, oh, fuck it, let's just have some fun and muck about. Whereas actually, (laughs) that's great. And I probably learned a lot doing
0: that, but I probably would have learned faster had I taken note of what he was doing. I want to get into uh, how being a stand-up came into your life. But what I want to do first is that obviously I want to jump back to growing up and I want to talk about growing up in the lovely Nottingham. Yeah, which is which has a huge place in my heart as well, you know.
1: Yes, that, yeah, it's
0: a great place, a very
1: funny place. Probably the probably the funniest accent in the UK, not even and underrepresented until um, Shane Meadows and Vicky McClure came along. Really, you, you, they're people who've put the accent on telly and made people realise, yeah, that it's a place in its own right. Um, but I grew up um, with my mum and my sister. So my sister's a year younger than me. My mum raised us both. Um, as a single mum on benefits in Matt, in the city of Nottingham.
0: Matt, where was where was your dad?
1: So he he well they'd split up basically before I was one, so I had no memory of him being around. Um, he was in Uganda, right? He was in Uganda volunteering, doing very good stuff. But they'd split up, and then he'd he sort of gone away, and then he and then he was in Coventry, and we get on and everything. So there's no there's no issues around that. But um, yes, my mum. Raised me and my sister in a, uh, you know, terraced council house in inner city Nottingham, and uh, I think if you'd have told her that one of her kids would have ended up being a comedian, it would it would have just been unbelievable. You know, those sorts of, they're just not on the horizon. You know, you grow up in an area like that, stuff like this just isn't on the horizon. And what did she think
0: about you? What what did she? What was her? Let me rephrase that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about school, Matt.
1: Yes. I liked it. I enjoyed school. So, um, I'd say I was a studious kid. Mm. Not a nerd, but I took it seriously. Mm. Mainly because my mum was the sort of mum who always sided with the teachers. So I went to a school (laughs) in a rough area where... I remember one of our... One of the mums coming in and slapping one of the teachers during the lesson. Like, it was bedlam in there. Slapped her. It was incredible. Wow. Um, Whereas my mum was always like, if the teacher tells me you're mucking about, she would believe the teacher. Yeah. So, like, I had a a respect for authority early on. And my mum had been a nun before she had me. Right. So I think she had sort of like a, you know, deference to authority and stuff like that. Not, Not in a sense that you would be subservient, but just that you took authority seriously and you you abide by the rules. So um, I enjoyed school. Um, Were you at the same school
0: as your sister, Matt? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Primary and secondary. Right. And then, um, yeah, I think... Yeah, I took it seriously. But I had fun and everything. But I, I realised I wanted to learn. I enjoyed reading. You know, I, I didn't like having classes disrupted and things. So I'd say I was a, a, a good student who... Um, We've probably had to work hard to get on, you know. And then at secondary school, I definitely remember not being naughty, but being slightly more rebellious and sort of being a bit more. I think it's just puberty, isn't it? Like young lads. Basically, you go from being a boy to being a man, and everyone's changing from a boy to. In your class. That's happening at a different rate.
0: Exactly.
1: It's just—it's so funny thinking about it because you don't really realise at the time. But it's—it's insane what happens
0: to you in your teens. And it's so confusing as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're like, all of a sudden, I'm six foot tall
0: (laughs) overnight. Six foot?
1: Yeah. Where's this come from? (sighs) And I can get served in pubs at 15. I'm going to get drunk with men. You're like, what is, this can't be right. <laughs> this can obviously now we live in a society where that doesn't really happen anymore. Like, young kids drinking in pubs don't happen. No. I think I was the last generation where you could drink in, you know, you could go out and not, I mean, you know, look at a 15-year-old now, they do not look 18. They certainly don't look 21 or 25. No. No question. Um, so everyone knew what was going on. But yeah, that was, uh, that was a real discovery for me. Because I wasn't rebellious, but I liked having fun. I think
0: that's what it was. Were you still quite sporty, though, at school? Because I know sport's such a massive part of your life. Yeah,
1: I was sporty in the sense that I loved playing it, but I was crap at it. So I, right. I, was, I was the captain of the um, primary school football team, but by the time I got to secondary school, there was just no hope. I was, ru- I was basically in the school football team at primary school because there weren't many people, and I was well-behaved. mm but at the secondary school, you just realise, oh, my word, like, this is just a different standard of football. Even at that age, you realise it. So I played it for fun, but I was, never, I was never good at it. So what was the goal?
0: Forgive the, the term. <laughs> what? When I was at school? Yeah, what were you thinking? What was going to be a career? There's no way that you were thinking, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian.
1: I don't think so. I mean, I did my first gig when I was... I did my first gig when I was 16. Did you?
0: Went to a comedy club in
1: Nottingham, yeah. I started going to watch live comedy. How did that come about? You know what? I've racked my brains to try and remember. I remember I would do school talent shows. That was once a year. I'd get up and
0: impersonate a couple of teachers. Ah, right, this is interesting. So it was the impersonations that came first before the comedy. Yeah, but I was
1: writing kind of in a way that... I don't know whether I was writing stand-up routines or what, but I would do... I'd write kind of routines and a couple of them would have impressions in. So it wasn't all impressions, but, like, I'd do, like, the deputy headmaster or whatever.
0: <laughs> and oh, it was, fe- it was very much in-house, like, Mr. So-and-so or this person. That yeah, I'd knew. do a
1: few telly, Pete. I'd I, I do, like, football commentators and footballers and stuff. Right. And then, and then I started going to watch live comedy at um, Just the Tonic Comedy Club in Nottingham which was at a pub called The Old Vic. And when I was going there, so this, this was when live stand-ups, this is like pre-live at the Apollo, there was the stand-up show on BBC One, I think, the comedy network on Channel 5, but that generation of live co- comedy wasn't having like big TV exposure. There wasn't a big stand-up show on telly. So I was going to this pub and for five quid every Sunday, I'd see Daniel Kitson, uh, wow. Sean Locke, Peter K, Johnny Vegas, John Thompson... Just like the biggest names, and these people were all clearly on the way to being household names, but live at the Apollo wasn't on telly, so it was going to happen through different routes. So I was just watching that, and was just became completely transfixed by it. And live comedy at that point had nationwide a following in the way that live music does, where yeah. pe- people wanted to discover new bands. So it didn't really matter who was on. There were two hundred people every night at this pub in Nottingham who wanted to see live comedy, no matter who it was. And if anything, it was more of a thrill to see someone you'd never heard of. Mm. That's been a huge change. Now, comedy clubs find it really difficult to survive if they're not saying there's someone off Live at the Apollo or Mock the Week on. It's really hard for
0: live promoters now. Yeah, because it used to be like rock and roll, going, oh, I, oh was a, I was at that gig when I first saw Daniel Kitson. Who? Well, you'll soon find out. Exactly. Type of thing. It was like, it was, you know, it was Sex Pistols, Free Trade All type. It was thrilling. As a punter, it was just thrilling. You're like, I don't know who
1: these people are, but they're all gods. Mm. And a... a, a Comedians are varying different statuses now, but they were all brilliant. I don't remember ever seeing a bad one, but I just think I was 16 I was just caught up in this thing. So then I thought, well, I, I might as well try it. God, oh, wow. Then, yeah, I remember seeing... So Alistair McGowan did it one night, and I was drunk. I'm like a kid. I was like, <laughs> oh, I can do a few impressions. And it, to be fair to him, he was really generous, and he gave me a bit of his time. And then he was like, oh, you should, you should get up and do a bit. I'll have a word with the guy who runs the gig called Daryl Martin, who still runs the gig now. And, um, yeah, I, I rang him. And he said, oh, you're that impressionist bloke. As McGowan told me about you. I was like, oh, cool. So he said, yeah, do five minutes, if you like. So then I, I did five.
0: I think I was rubbish. I think I died. <laughs> did you pre- booed did, up, did, did, like, you pre- did you prepare the five minutes, or did you just think, I'm just going to go up and do five minutes?
1: No, I prepared it a little bit. I had yeah. two or three things I knew I was going to talk about. And, um, I, I, yeah, I had a couple of gag gags. But, um, I mean, it was all right. I think they were just like, what, what is this? You know, it was just kind of like, uh, I didn't get booed off or anything, but it was just like, I did my time. I would love to, you know, so many comedians say, oh, the first gig, I smashed it. And then I just, that definitely did not happen for me. I did not smash it. But um, I just thought, well, I've done it now, so it's not that scary. And then would just occasionally do a bit. So when I was doing my A-levels and stuff, I would occasionally get up and do a bit. I'd write a few jokes and then ring Darren up and see if I could do five minutes. And then did it as a hobby for a bit. Um, but, yeah, at that point at school, I would never have thought I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. It just, I guess it was just like a hobby I was doing on the side.
0: But did you think it was
1: a viable career anyway? No. No? No, because it's for other people. You know, you can't underestimate how, even though a lot of stand-up comedians... There's a proud history working-class stand-up comedy, obviously, in Britain through the working men's clubs and Manning and stuff like that, which is not the sort of comedy I do or like. But it wasn't unusual to hear working-class voices on telly doing stand-up and regional voices and whatever. But it still just felt like... London, to me, at that age, was as exotic as, like, the Bahamas. Like, it was just a million... Even though it's only, like, 100 miles up the road from Nottingham, (laughs) it is emotionally so far away. So you just never, you I would just never have contemplated
0: ending up making a living doing it. So it was just purely a hobby at that point and you were just going to knuckle down with the schoolwork?
1: Yeah, I just thought, well, you know, in the same way that people, I don't know, what, what do people do outside of school? People go to karate.
0: Yeah, or they do I drama was doing club. Yeah. I, was doing, yeah, I was doing that sort of thing, yeah. But it's quite unheard of, like, for a young 16-year-old whose hobby is just doing stand-up comedian. I've never known anybody that sort of, you know, they get on with their academic... Prospects at school, but also in the you know in the downtime, they're they're not doing gymnastics or they're doing karate, they're doing stand up. I'm one of those people who just throws
1: themselves in without, and there was no plan. I wasn't like right, I'm going to do this, and in five years I'm going to be here. Or I was just like, well, I I like it, so I'm going to try it. And uh, I was the same with politics. I could join the Labour Party young. I just threw myself into it, just start volunteering and knocking on doors. There was no plan to get anywhere. I was just like, well, that's just what you do if you're interested in something. With football, I would get to Forest matches. I'll sport Nottingham Forest, like three hours before kickoff, and wait for like the players to arrive and get all the autographs <laughs> and stuff like that. I just anything I'm interested in, I'm fully in. I'm absolutely in. I don't have any interest where I'm like, eh, I sort of like it. I'm either in or I'm out. Yeah. And with comedy, with politics, with football, I was in, and therefore I just wanted to consume it all. I wanted to watch it all, and I wanted to do it. Are you still like that now
0: as a grown man?
1: Yeah, yeah I'm still, I mean. <laughs> I know this is an audio form, but if I just tilt the laptop, like, there's like football shirts on the wall. And like, I'm tri- I am still buy like kits and stuff. I still have the same tastes I had when I was 15, but I
0: probably can eat hotter curries now. <laughs> and drink, and eat more ice cream. And eat more ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of school, what was, was, did you have a plan? Not, not, not really, comedy wise. I just so kept doing it. I'm in mean career wise, full stop. I mean, we've we've established that the the stand up for the moment was 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 a hobby. So, what was what was the career, career advisor telling you at school? You know what? I don't think I saw a career advisor. I certainly don't
1: remember chatting to a careers advisor at that point. I was more. I thought I was going more into politics. So. I had a year off after doing my A-levels and worked for a local MP. Mm. So I worked for a local MP, I think, three days a week and worked in a local pub three days a week. And that was amazing. And I did a few gigs here and there. But that, I mean, what a year that was. Like, (laughs) out of school, getting, you know, having (laughs) lock-ins, getting to work for an MP. Like, Labour in government, so this would have been around, like,
0: 2001.
1: Mm. Just... We about yeah, just won a second term. So like Labour at the time were like successful and riding high and, and being able to do stuff. Working for an MP, working in a pub. Oh, it was a great
0: year. But I didn't, well, I didn't have any grand plan at, at that point. Matt, w- was there any um, goal achievement with regards to throwing yourself into politics? Was there mm. something that you wanted to achieve there?
1: Not really. No, I just wanted to. At that point, I thought, well, I'll just work in politics somehow, and I didn't really. Understand how it all worked. And then a few years later, I did end up working for the Labour Party for, f- yeah. f- for a few years. So I kind of got myself there, but I was never thinking, right, I need to work for an MP for a bit and then. Like I wasn't trying to become a politician.
0: Right. I wasn't okay. thinking, right, I need to get elected. That's kind you know, of what that's kind of what I was getting
1: at. Yeah, sod that, man. It destroys people. I've got more. I think I've simultaneously so much respect and disrespect for politicians at the same time. It's incredible. But in terms of the personal cost to them as individuals, whatever party, as long as they're broadly around the mainstream, like most of them are trying to change the world for the better and and at at huge personal and often emotional and physical cost. But um, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the idea that you could be part of something that would change the world for the better. So I got... That's what I was kind of involved in. It was almost like... Sort of like joining a religion, really. Mm. Um, But no, I I didn't want to get elected or anything like that. That was... uh, I quickly went off that idea. So how long were you working in politics for? So from 2001 till, really, 2010 or 11. So I did a good 10 years around it, working for MPs, working for the party. I worked as an advisor in local government, and then I worked in public affairs in London. So... Yeah, a a decade, really. And then at the same time, I I then started doing comedy again. Not while I was working for the party, because I thought that would be too risky. And then towards the end, I started doing it
0: again. I just thought, sod it. I'm I'm probably going to... And that was... I definitely had, like, a change of direction. Well, speaking of change of direction, um, with your stand-up, when did the political aspect of what you do not only creep in, but kind of take
1: over? So that would have been around, I reckon, 2010. So t- basically when I started to knock the day job on the head and really concentrate on it, they say, write about what you know, and that's basically all I'd done for 10 years. Yeah. Well, that and drink, and I just thought, I had a few drinking stories, but like... How much,
0: how much mileage can you get out of those?
1: Exactly, really? yeah. Well, uh, yeah, <clears throat> Certainly for me, I just thought, I found it unsatisfying to keep... Do you know doing that sort of stand up so and some people do it really well I just wasn't doing it particularly well so I was like I need to and it was mates of mine were saying well why don't you t- you know you tell us all these funny stories about politics why don't you do some of them on stage and then that's just how I started doing it and then I just thought well I could I could do jokes about what's happening this week and then basically became more topical and more of the moment and then just as the years went on that's kind of where I've ended up but there was no I at no point had a plan to go right I'm going to be political comedian and i'm gonna do this sort of comedy i think with so many people not just in creative industries but in life you might have a general sense that you you want to work in that area but you're basically aiming at like it's like bully's prize board you're like you're gonna aim for that big segment up there but where the dart lands there's quite a big area yeah so um i was just chucking darts around well it's why i got fired Oh, sorry, let's go well, back on that, I was man. kidding, I was joking about throwing darts around <laughs> in an office. but
0: Maybe I should have stuck at politics,
1: I don't <laughs> think comedy's really
0: my thing. What I'm interested to know, and I don't know this, even though we're we're mates, what was your stand-up set like prior to politics creeping in? A couple of gags, a couple of impressions, a mm. couple of, like, drinking
1: tales. It was fairly, it's what you would probably call quite standard, the sort of comedy a bloke in his 20s would do in, in the early noughties, you know. Right. It was all right, but it was drinking stories, funny stuff my mate said, a couple of impressions, average stuff,
0: really. Was Were you satisfied with it? I mean, obviously you weren't, but at the time, was you were you knowing, yeah, this isn't... I want to be in this field, but this isn't exactly what I need to be doing?
1: I think because I was just doing it as a hobby... I just enjoyed being on stage and getting laughs, and that was it. And I didn't really think too much about what was what I was doing to get the laughs, do you know what I mean? I wasn't yeah. thinking, well, it worked, but is it any good? You know, so it, the, the, the more you get into these things... At first, you're know, like, well, if it gets a laugh, it's good. And then after a while, you think, that's not necessarily... Obviously, if it's not getting a laugh, then it's definitely not good. But there are different types of good comedy, and I just... Yeah, I suppose I wasn't finding it very satisfying. In the end, I just thought, well, I... <sighs> And it, I get bored. I think one of the reasons why I do topical stuff is I get bored with my own material so quick that I, was at, I ended up having bits of material that I had knocked around for maybe three years. Now, I know comedians that got routines they've had for 10 years or 15, and they yeah. still do them with precision delivery, and they're absolutely fine with it. But I have a different personality type, and I got bored of being on autopilot, doing the same routine. So then I was like, topical comedy obviously means that it's going to date fast, but it just it kept me on my toes. It means that I've written far more stuff than I would ever have written had I not made that, that crucial change.
0: And do you thrive off that? You thrive off the work aspect of it, that you need to keep going. Oh, mate, I, I, t- well, I
1: don't know whether it's a mixture of...
0: When I first went self-employed,
1: I, I don't know if this was the same for you, but when you basically stopped having a proper job... So I went from being in public affairs to then having an overnight radio show on Talk Sport. and that's what allowed me to then do stand-up in the rest of the week kind of guilt-free, you know, I wasn't having to, like, explain it to a boss or anything. Mm. And I still, and this is, like, over ten years ago, I still haven't got used to not having to be at work in the morning. I don't... I can't believe that's allowed. I can't believe there's not someone ringing me up every day going, have you done that thing? We need that thing... (laughs) Why? Where are you? What do you mean you're sat at home? Do you know what I mean? I can't. So I think, in a way, there's like a kind of Catholic guilt that's there where I'm like, well, I need to be busy because... Not for when the Lord comes, but, like, I need to be busy (laughs) because that's wasting time. You know, I put a lot of pressure on myself to be busy all the time.
0: Do you think too Um, much pressure sometimes?
1: Yeah, but not... not, It never stops me enjoying life or anything like that. I still go out and I still get plenty out of life, but I think I need that constant pressure to, like... I think what it is, is fundamentally I'm lazy, so I've had to keep myself busy for fear of unleashing the lazy bloke who would never, ever work again.
0: But you drive yourself on with that. You're you're in charge. Yes. Uh, and also, I think, because I'm writing
1: about something that I care about, so, like, politics and the news, I'm wanting to take the piss out of people in charge. They're always making a mistake, so, like, I'm always like, well, I want to be the one doing jokes about that. You know what I mean? I'm sort of in only competition myself, but I'm kind of like, well, I I want to write routines about that. This is great. What a great thing to be able to write jokes about and to write a show around all this and then itching to get on stage to do it. So actually there is a level of genuine desire, but there are some days, and I'm sure you have this, and anyone who's creative will have this, where it's just not happening, where ideas aren't happening or it's misfiring, but I, I always try and I try and write a couple of days a week and just force myself to, even if it's crap. Mm. And Most days are crap. You're not going to be writing gold that often. But it's just that
0: force yourself to do it. Well, it was funny. I was thinking about that the other day. I was going for a walk and I was doing some, just. I was just doing some recordings, doing some talking. And a few days prior, I wasn't having a particularly creative day. But yeah. I, I, And weeks back, I would give myself quite a hard time about that. But now I've just gone, right, I'm just going to sit with it. I'm yeah. just going to... Well, that's just That's just the way this... This day is going to pan out like this. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the, you know that list that I've got? Yeah, that's not going to happen today. <laughs> and I'm not going to give myself a hard time about it. And I felt a little bit freer. That is really good. I mean...
1: I think sometimes as well, there's a lot to be said for having a bit of time off from something so that you go back a bit hungrier, that if you wear yourself down with it, you end up resenting it and it's a chore. And I think that with Edinburgh sometimes, people think, i talked to the comedians, mates of mine, and they have vastly different mindsets on it. I think the ones that get more out of it are the ones that think, right, I've got an hour that I can literally do anything with. I make the rules. It's my show. You know, that is a blank canvas and what a thrill to plan this hour in my world that I'm going to take you into, other people are like, I've got to write a fucking hour, man. I mean, like, like someone, like there's a foreman involved, you know what I mean, he's on my fucking hour, I've got to get that hour fucking knocked out, because the bloke at the rally factory, you're, like,
0: like, you, you're in charge of this, you are the
1: foreman, mate.
0: Yeah, go and do something else if it's like that.
1: Yeah, like, to think about it, I think there's definitely something in thinking about things in the right way, and constantly reminding yourself, and... The motivation that I have as well, one of the motivations is people are paying money to come and see this. Mm. They are paying money and people work really hard. And people get... Re- I know what I feel like when I get a ticket to something. And you... I mean, you buy tickets for stuff now more than a year in advance. It's on the fridge. Yeah. For four seasons. Like, I can't wait to see that. And you get so, the week of it and you iron your best shirt and all that. You know, <laughs> people are coming to your show with that same level of excitement, I would hope. Yeah. I don't want to let them down. Yeah. I don't want people to go... We've got a babysitter for that. It was rubbish. You know, that pressure of the fact that people have invested in you as a performer. That's why, one of the many reasons I don't drink in Edinburgh anymore. Because I think doing a show hungover, in the end I ended up feeling like it. And obviously there's a a medium between not drinking at all and getting so drunk that you're badly hungover on stage. You can have a glass of wine or a couple of beers or whatever. But I just found that if I drink in Edinburgh I'm really going to drink. And... I remember a couple of shows where... And this is years ago, but I remember one where... I mean, to be fair, I'd been at a wedding the night before and I'd been the best man, so...
0: Let, let, but, let me just let me just preface it with this. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, I was
1: so drunk. But I had to get from, basically... I think it was somewhere in Leicestershire. So it wasn't like going from London to Edinburgh where it's just one train line. Let's get four different trains. Mm. And I think it was on a Sunday... Get back up to be able to do my show that night, and I was so hungover. I've been on all these hot trains, just dripping with sweat, and I think it's the only time in my life I needed a pint before I went on just to just to like settle level you out.
0: Yeah,
1: I remember having that pint, and it worked. But I remember thinking, I can't, I can't do this. And even though it was just for a wedding, like I I hadn't just been reckless, I was like, I can't. There's 170 people here that have bought tickets to see this, and I'm drenched in sweat, you know, that, I just felt, I felt really disrespectful. And actually, <laughs> it was one of the best shows on the run. <laughs> Maybe I've learned the wrong lesson. It should be drinking more. It was electric. It was it was on the best gigs of my life. And there was part of me that thought, oh, I'm gonna do this more often. But no, I, I thought, I've had my fingers burnt now. I got away with it, but yeah, I'm, I'm quite... Uh, I think that that pressure... That knowing people have paid and they've come with smiles on their faces and you just don't let them down, that really like drives me on and keeps me, keeps me, yeah, keeps me on the straight and narrow. How was
0: your first Edinburgh, Matt? What was the, because it's quite a big decision for a, you know, a relatively new comedian or wherever they're at. I mean, actually, no, not wherever they're at. I'd say relatively new comedian going up to Edinburgh because you've got to think of all the cost. Yeah. And you ain't going to walk away, I mean, you're probably going to lose money. Oh, you lose money for the first few. Um, But I always saw it,
1: and I think as well, like, don't go for the sake of it, firstly. Think about what the show's going to be, because otherwise, if you're, if you're losing money, that, that is wasted money. Whereas if I think you're going there and you're doing it every year and you're improving, you're thinking really hard about what show you're putting on, I think then it's different. I think then it is an investment in your future. And I think about it like tuition fees. I'm not. I'm going to have to outlay this. And obviously, I mean, the way it works for most comedians is your agent will pay for it and then you owe them. So you're paying the money back over the year. So in a way, it is like tuition fees. You're not paying it up front.
0: Yeah. You're
1: paying it off as you go. And each year, as a result of doing Edinburgh, I was getting more work and more work and more work. So actually, I was financially better off year on year for having done it. Um Now, obviously, it would be fairer if you're selling tickets to... um Make money in Edinburgh and reap the financial reward of the other work you do on the back of it, but that's not the way it works at the moment. So I just thought, well, that's the system. W- what choice do you have? You either do it or you don't. So I just thought I'm going to do it. And um, you make a lot of
0: mistakes in your first year. Um, what were some of the mistakes that you made? Do you remember?
1: I think I should have thought more. I mean, this, it was. A, I don't think I've ever put on a bad show in Edinburgh. I've always thought I've always worked my nuts off to make it really funny, but I think. Knowing what I... Although, to be honest, I think you end up making the show based on the situation you're in at the time and what you find funny. So I wouldn't necessarily do anything differently. But I think maybe... I think things like structure do help in an Edinburgh show, that if you have a beginning point and then an end point and it kind of all wraps together, I think there's something nice and satisfying about that for audiences. I don't do really do that too much, but um, I loved it. I mean, it was just such a thrill. I mean, your first Edinburgh... Really, until that point, you've only been doing, at the most, probably 20 minutes on stage in gigs, and then all of a sudden you're doing your first hour. Mm. And that is, a, that is a, probably the biggest leap you make in your career, from that 20 to that hour. Just f- You've never been on stage for an hour before. It feels so long.
0: That is a huge jump.
1: It is. From 20 like, well, to I've 60. never done it. You don't know how... It, and obviously now, in retrospect, you're like, well, it's just... It's
0: just Three times twenty minutes. Not that I didn't
1: understand the maths of it. <laughs> but like you're like, oh, why was that ever a problem? Do you know what I mean? But it is huge. In your head, it's massive. It's a mm. huge hurdle to go, well, I can now do an hour of comedy.
0: Um But what an what an achievement. I think it's an incredible achievement. I really do. I've got so much respect. I have so much respect
1: for anyone who does anything creative and anyone who puts it out there because what people who've never done it don't re- understand, and I think That goes for anyone. And you can, I think it's the same in so many things. It's like sport, it's like politics, it's like anything creative. There is a world of difference between being the advisor to the politician and being the politician. Being the person whose name is on the poster that has to stand up in a leisure center and have their career booed when they lose their seat live on TV. So you can be so close to this thing, understand it completely, but you are emotionally a galaxy away. And I think it's the same with anything creative is, you can be a, you can be a great critic, you can see the way these shows are made. Making them and doing them are, are just a, a light years away from where you are. You don't know the pressure. You don't know what it feels like to stand on a stage and worry, or to write something, and you don't know what it's like to have it. It's the judgement of it as well, you're not used to that. Mm. I think, well, why are people writing about me, you know, reviewers? Whether it's good or bad, it feels bizarre. So the first year is, is that all hits you like a train. You go, oh, my God, I'm now there to be talked about, there to be in good ways and bad. And, and uh, you know, it's, it, you have to treat those two imposters just the same. You know, you have to deal with that. You have to deal with the lows in the way you deal with the highs. And, and learning that lesson is really, you have to learn that fast. Otherwise, you go mad.
0: Speaking of that... And put it, put in Edinburgh and normal shows into two different categories. Does your reading of reviews change from being in Edinburgh or from touring, or do you do, or do you do you blanket that with I read everything or I don't read anything? I read everything. Do and you? Probably, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, I can't bear it. I can't bear knowing there's something out there about me that you know. Particularly in Edinburgh, it can feel very claustrophobic. And I've actually learned over the years, everyone's got their head up their ass up there. Like, no-one is noticing, what, in terms of performers, mm. no-one's really noticing what anyone else is doing. And there are a million ways to have a good festival up there. And you should just see, having done an hour for a month, as a success, regardless of how many people you've played to or what the reviewer said, that in itself is a huge personal achievement... It's like running the London Marathon. So few people will ever do it. And you should respect yourself for having had a go. Um, so then there are other degrees of success within that. Obviously, you want to have a show that's well-reviewed. You want to sell tickets. You want to get noticed. You want to get work out of it. Um, and I'm very lucky that, um, on the whole, I think it tends to go quite well. Um, so, at, you know, at least I don't have some of those worries. But even within that, you know, it's relative Things get in your head, mm. and you know it could just be a. It could be it's not even about whether it's a bad review. There could just be a bit of snark in a really nice review, and you, you can lose your head for days over stuff like that if you're not careful. So you just have to. I think I'm going to read it. I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to deal with it and I'm gonna put it out of my mind. You know, because I could, with the you best know what it is? in the world, I think it's worth. And I think this is like, I think this reflects probably a personality trait. Is I think the hangover is, is worth it. I think it's worth having a great night out if you're gonna be sick the following day. Now I've never I've had a few hangovers where I thought I'm never drinking again. But on the whole, I think it's probably worth it, right? <laughs> and I think the same with reviews is it's worth reading a bad one so that you allow yourself to read a good one and really enjoy the pleasure of that. Because I don't think you can you can't
0: if you're gonna read them, you're gonna read them all. And you have to and you have to believe the good and the bad.
1: Yeah, I just think... And also, it's just one person's perspective. And particularly in Edinburgh now, where, you know, obviously, from if you get a nice review from a serious publication, it can mm. do wonders, and, yeah. and it's just not a nice thing to have. You know, of course it is. Um, but, there, you know, in Edinburgh, there's, there's a million different reviewers reviewing stuff. And even the ones from the better publications, they might just not have liked it on that day, or... It just might not be your thing. Like, you can't... You have to just train yourself not to take it so personally, I think.
0: But also, we've got to a point now where everybody's a fucking reviewer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we all are, aren't we? On, like, TripAdvisor and Amazon. In some respects, yeah, of course. So I just think you have to... You just have to... You just have to find a way of not letting the bad ones ruin your day, not letting the good ones go to your head. And I think if you can exist in that world, then you can read them. I know a lot of people that... Can't do that, mm. therefore don't read them. Or I know people that will maybe read them after the event. But I think, just deal with them then, get
0: it done. It's a bit like, it's a bit like when we started this conversation, it's a bit like picking up the phone, isn't it? Just get it done, answer the phone. Exactly, well, would be like having unpaid bills piling up.
1: Just open, there's a bill in there, you've got to read it. you got to pay just it. Just open it, deal, just deal with it now, do you know what I mean? <laughs> deal with it in a month's time, read your reviews now, and then you can move on with your day. Do you go and see a lot of comedy, Matt? I used to see loads. Um, In Edinburgh, I'm quite selfish. So in Edinburgh, I will... I mean, the amount of time I just spend doing nothing in Edinburgh, it's a real, literal waste of time. But I just think I'm going to concentrate on my show and I have a kind of... a a sort of calendar that has evolved where I go to, like, a health spa. That's such a twat. (laughs) I'll sit in a jacuzzi for like an hour. And then I'll go and sit on these like warm stone benches and read a book. Then I'll have a nice lunch. And then I'll go back and watch The A-Team. And then I'll climb a shirt. And then I'll go up to the gig. And that is the last couple of Edinburgh's. It is the least called cool, Like the world's greatest arts festival is happening. Amazing creative people from around the world are putting on shows that are like... Challenging genres and breaking taboos, and, and
0: I'm sat, sat there watching sat the A team—it just makes
1: you feel nice. I'm like, I'm actually regressing to being a child. I'm like, going to watch the A team, then I'm going to have a burger. I just think you've got to look after yourself while you're up there, and just you know, it's a bit. The thing is, as well, it comes on the back of in May, June, and July, traveling all over the place, mm. gigging often to really difficult crowds, small numbers doing Edinburgh previews all over, you know, because everyone's previewing, and I will just take any gig at that point, and a lot of them (laughs) aren't well run. So you turn up and they're like, oh, yeah, there's only one person here, but we'll do it, and you think, oh, come on, mate, this isn't a gig. So you've gone through that experience, then you get to Edinburgh, where, thank God, I'm able to perform in a nice room, that's air-conditioned, that has proper seats, you know. I just think, well... I'm going to relax as much as possible and conserve all that energy for the stage, really. Yeah. I want to go on stage itching to get on. And I find sometimes, excuse me, if I watch shows in Edinburgh, I think, ah, that show's better than mine.
0: Right, Okay.
1: Oh, that's really good. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, they're a genius and I'm rubbish, you know. And I just think the best way to get through it for me is I'll go and see my mates, but on the whole, I'll I'll be sat at home watching the 18th. <laughs> I feel like such an idiot for admitting that.
0: So <laughs> I right, can always cut it out, Matt. Don't worry, it's fine.
1: Oh no, there's no need to cut it out. But you would like if you were. If you were on a West End run. You won't be going out watching loads of other shows during the day, would you?
0: <laughs> no, I mean I, I didn't just mean in Edinburgh in general. I meant just across the board because you know sometimes if I'm if I'm watching a, a film or a television program, sometimes I find it hard to, you know, you see the cracks or you see things that aren't yes, quite there. So I'm just wondering if you can switch off and be a punter. I oh, think yeah. That, I think I mean, that, that, was, that was the aim of the question. I think, I mean, the crucial difference is
1: once you start touring, you're basically on your own. So you go from being on the circuit where you're gigging with two or three people every night, different people every night, all around the country, mm. it's really sociable, you'll often all stay together, Comedy's like a sort of group effort. It's still lonely when you're on stage in terms of you're the only person doing your routines. Um, and then, once you can sell tickets to tour, it's just you. I mean, if you have a support act, I don't, but I just go to these gigs on my own. Yeah. <laughs> Do them on my own.
0: Go back to, like, a, you know, Premier Inn or whatever. And that's that. Well, it's funny you said about, you know, it is you on stage and it's just you. And I'm sure it isn't lonely when you're performing because you've you've got the show and you've got the the adrenaline and you've got the buzz and you've got the crowd. Yeah. But the relentless touring must take its toll. It must it must be lonely or it must affect you I don't know in what way? Mentally? Um. Physically?
1: I, I, well, if you don't look after yourself health wise, you'll put on weight if you're not careful. Yes, yeah. so
0: I have to try and like ration myself when I'm on tour. But it, because it, here's I, the thing, sorry to interrupt, Matt. You you always strike me as uh, positive. You're, I think you're a joy to be around. You're very bubbly. You've always got <laughs> someone to talk about. And if I was going to like a do and we yeah. know sometimes that we don't like going to do's, I would definitely bring you with me. <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> because, oh, that's a lot of no, Because you, you're very good at socialising, you're very good at throwing yourself in the deep end with people. So in that respect, I go, yeah, well, that's great in crowds. But when you're work and you're at work and say what? I mean, are you... Say if you're touring for, I don't know, six months or whatever. yeah. How hard is
1: that? I don't f- find it that hard. I mean, there are there's something really pleasurable in um, going on stage. So I'll I'll do two halves of 45 minutes. So I'll do an hour and a half show with a break in the middle, and that is like just intense. That's on bang 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 break bang 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 bang. bang. There's something really nice about just going back to a hotel room, having a curry and watching Match of the Day or something like that. There's something yeah. really nice about that. And just having a bit of, after that intensity of performance, just being able to go somewhere quiet. Um, it depends. So my tours are often over, say, three, four, five months. And it, I'm not away from home every night. So it will be maybe three or four nights a week. So then I'm still getting other normal life in. I think if I was right. just away every night for six months solid, yeah, that would slightly drive me insane. But the process of touring at times is a delight. You're getting on trains, you're going to different parts of the country. I always leave early. So I'm never travelling at rush hour, I can do a bit of work on the train, get to the hotel early, get to what are usually really nice art centres and places, perform for people that really want to see you, put on a, a show that... I mean, touring is just such a pleasure as a comedian. And then... And sometimes what happens is, obviously, and I'm sure you have this when you're doing stage stuff, wherever you're touring... There's usually at least one person there that you know from, like, an old work or school or whatever. So an old teacher of mine came to see me in crew, And how cool was that? I just went for a couple of beers with him afterwards. It was great. So I'm travelling all over the country, getting to see people I don't usually see, old uni mates, old work mates. So it's a great way,
0: actually, to keep in touch with people that if I was just staying in London all the time, I wouldn't see. Do you think there'll ever be a point where you're just about to go on stage and you feel... Oh. <laughs> this is just a bit of a slog, and I'm just not really into this.
1: There are some, there are some definitely where inevitably, because in any in any run where you get, so it would be the same for you of, of doing like a theatre mm. run or whatever, mm. you can't help but compare them to last night's audience. You can't help but go, yeah, oh, I was better last night. And then you start to realise, well, Fridays and Saturdays are good, Tuesdays are a bit tougher, whatever. And then so when you're doing night after night after night, you you think. Oh, that one was great. And then you're constantly comparing them. So sometimes (laughs) it's usually, it's not, you know what, actually, I think you can tell on the whole how good an audience is going to be before you even go on stage. And one test I think is, so I have like a pre-gig playlist that I make and it's all upbeat stuff. It's, Oasis and um, <laughs> stuff like that, right? so <laughs> the music I like, but I'll pick not the heavy one, but I'll pick, like, She's Electric and stuff like that. Nice, light, upbeat music. If there's a gap, you can hear, like, the murmur of the audience. If the gap between one song ending and the next song starting makes the audience be quiet, because they feel self-conscious talking in the silence, that's going to be a harder crowd than if they're just talking away, and chattering, regardless of what song's on, and they don't even notice when one song's finished and the other one started. You can tell they're slightly uptight. There is something collective in that room where they're chatting away, chatting away, and then the song's ended. The... and you think, what's happening there? And then the next song starts, and they start talking again, you think, fuck. And I think, I would say 99 times out of 100, I've been able to tell before I go on how good the gig is going to be, based on that sort of test.
0: Matt Ford's test guide to stand-up comedy there. Matt, <laughs> Matt, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It's just been brilliant to talk to you. I've loved getting to know all that. There's so much stuff that I didn't know at all there because we haven't even sat down and spoke about all this in your past. I've loved it. Thank you. Well, I suppose you don't. But I hope, it, you, As you know, I'm a big fan of the podcast and I've
1: got so much out of listening to so many of these episodes. I hope if one person
0: gets one thing out of this,
1: I've just been rattling on a load of rubbish. No, you haven't. Do
0: you know how many oh, people say it's that? Been all right. It's been brilliant, Matt. Matt Ford, thank you so much.
1: Cheers, mate.
0: And another episode is done. How good is that? He's such a laugh Matt. All the, the, the few years that I've known Matt, I have never known him not to be happy. He is constantly happy. Um, and I think we all need that in our lives right now, don't we? Um, Yes, he's still playing, and I am still going to go back to homeschooling any minute now. I just want to (laughs) say... This is hilarious. Yep, still going. I want to say thank you so much for downloading and subscribing and supporting us in any way you can. If you support us on Patreon, thank you. You know it means so much to us to keep this podcast going. And if you're reaching out to us on social media letting us know how much you're there and you love the podcast that means loads if you're recommending the podcast even better if you're going on iTunes and you're leaving us five stars I haven't said this for a bit actually can you can you go and leave us a review if you're listening on Apple just click on the five stars and just write something nice something from the heart something honest and let us know what you think we do read the comments and it just helps things pushes up the charts and all that malarkey um Right, I've got to go because I'm doing... I think I've got a friend's lesson. <sighs> Wish me luck. I shall see you next week for episode 126, where I sit down at home with comedian, author, writer, and all-round proper good bloke. It's Robert Webb. Until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. My stomach's rumbling, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. I shall see you next week. You take care. Stay safe. Stay sound. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers.